Hello and welcome to Euractiv's AgriFood podcast. I'm Gerardo Fortuna. And I'm Natasha Fett. And here's your weekly update on all things agriculture and food in the EU from Euractiv's AgriFood team. So European and African leaders came together this week for a long-delayed EU-Africa summit in Brussels in an attempt to seal the deal on its blueprint for a strategic partnership with Africa two years after this was first proposed. Yeah, there is a lot of um, push from uh, Europe to relaunch this partnership. And of course, it's mutual because also Africa wants the uh, Europe uh, backing um, basically the uh, recovery from the pandemic that also hit uh, Africa as well. Uh, There are several uh, topics on the agenda. Of course, the uh, situation with vaccines, uh, actually the lack of vaccine in uh, Africa, Uh, technology transfer also related to vaccine. Of course, there's also the uh, issue of investments, Uh, but there are also agriculture topics. Um, there are, of course, I mean, we're talking about agri-trade, uh, which is one of the main um, interesting aspects of the entire summit, uh, as well as other aspects that are a bit neglected, like, for instance, geographic indication, which is one of the, yeah, <laughs> which is one of the, the best tool um, in, in Europe when it comes to agriculture. And the European Commission and the EU um, collected a lot of experience on this field and they read it also to share this uh, uh, knowledge about geographic indication with Africa. Uh, they recently, they approved some um, food stuff from Africa. They granted EU protection like the uh, a pepper from, a particularly pepper from uh, Cameroon, but also the rooibos um, tea from South, South Africa. Uh, but again, the main issue is, of course, uh, rural Africa and how to integrate the rural, uh, the strategy for rural areas uh, that was uh, launched last year in, in Europe and, and what could actually uh, be uh, used by, of course, the African, uh, rural African uh, farmers in, in African rural areas. Uh, which is one of the main topics uh, uh, touched on by Janusz Wojciechowski in his keynote speech ahead of the, no, actually during the summit. Uh, I'm literally reading it uh, right now, and uh, he is talking about unlocking the potential of the agri-food sector and rural areas in Africa. Actually, Gerardo, you had an interesting interview this week uh, with the president of the International Fund for Agricultural Development, right? Indeed, indeed. And we discussed about this. We discussed about the fact that uh, uh, rural areas um, could be an opportunity for growth for Africa. Uh, We have, for instance, 12 million youngsters entering the African labor market every year. And at the same time... um, Agriculture is a relevant um, economic factor in Africa. If you think about it, the primary, primary sector uh, in Europe accounts of about uh, 5% of the GDP. In Africa, we're talking about 20%. So uh, it's it's quite considerable. Yeah, it's quite considerable. And also, I mean, uh, we also discuss about the role of sm- uh, small-scale farmers when it comes to um, how, how they've been hit by covid and how they can contribute to 
sorting out some issues of the EU-African partnership, like the migration, for instance. Uh, but we also talk about the uh, very uh, important topic for the French presidency of uh, uh, food sovereignty. Uh, I mean, it, it, it's actually not only about the... Um, it's not only a topic of this government. It's a bit of a, uh, a French team. Uh, when I was doing the interview, I asked the president if this could be a risk for the agri-trade between Africa and Europe. And he actually uh, replied me uh, with um, an, interesting, uh, an interesting answer. Uh, but let's hear from, from his voice, actually, uh, what they think about the food sovereignty concept and uh, Europe's push on, on, uh, on food sovereignty. I'm not too much worried about um, European being um, total, um, total sovereignty in terms of food production and, and, and matching the, 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 the supply and the demand, and which, yes, could reduce a lot of imports um, from Africa, and that can have an impact on the uh, um, EU-ACP um, um, agreement. But I'm saying that if Africa can do the same, with its own domestic, domestic, let's say, continental market under the Continental Free Trade Agreement, there's a huge opportunity for us for growth, growth um, based from um, emanating from agriculture. And we have with us today uh, Brendan Kulzat. Uh, welcome, Brendan. Hello. Thanks for having me. Brendan is uh, Associate Professor of uh, Environmental Politics at the European School of Political and Social Sciences in Lille. Uh, welcome to our podcast. We could literally talk about everything with you uh, because it's basically your main area of expertise, rural areas, uh, uh, environmental policies, but we like to um, we like you to share with us uh, your experience that you did uh, last year when you basically spent half of the year on this special road trip, which was also a bit of a farm trip, and in Italy, uh, which is actually my home country. Yes. And uh, so, <laughs> can you tell us a bit more about this uh, experience, Brendan? So uh, yeah, we did we did a well, we could call it a, a sabbatical in a way. Um, it's it's uh, legally speaking, it's it's a parental leave. Uh, it's something you can take up when you have a, a young child at home and you want to take care of it, or you want to take you know a few days off the week or something like that. And we decided to spend that in Italy. My uh, family-in-law is from Puglia, from the south, um, and. I think one of the first objectives that we had was to do the olive harvest. Uh, for those of you who know a bit of Puglia, I mean, it's full of olive trees, obviously. And the harvest happens in November. And November is kind of the worst time of the year to take holidays, right? Believe it or um, not, Brandon, so, Brandon, I'm from yeah. Puglia. So believe it or not. Oh, well, there you go. Well. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> um, and so so that was one of the early sort of objectives. And it and it kind of turned into, well, why not, you know, 
discover the rest of Italy because, you know, we go to Italy every year, but because the family's in Puglia, we always go to Puglia and we don't know the rest of Italy that much. And so it, it, it became this big road trip across rural Italy, basically. Um, yeah. So, and, and, and going from farm to farm. So we did a, a whole bunch of different things uh, beyond, of course, the, the olive harvest. Yeah, that's nice. So you also took your kids with you. That must have been quite an experience. Uh, yeah. yeah, it was. It was. I mean, I, I have just one, but I mean, it was it was quite the right timing because she was getting out of daycare and she was going to start school. Um, and so it was it was this right moment in her life, I guess, uh, to take her to see Italy, which, you know, also has the family. And so she could pick up a bit of Italian as well. And um, yeah, that was it was quite an experience indeed. And so, but you didn't just stay in Puglia, I understand. You kind of moved all around Italy, seeing different um, different projects, different farms, um, all, all different things. And I know that you spoke about um, some of the impacts that you saw on these farms of the st- extreme weather conditions that you had there. Um, perhaps you could talk a little bit about how climate change is already um, impacting Italian farmers and what strategies you've seen you know, people are employing to try and help cope with this. Right, right, right. So yeah, we 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 did a, a whole tour. We started in the north and then and then worked our way uh, down south, uh, basically f- following the farming seasons. And as it was getting colder, we were sort of going uh, um, to uh, the south. Uh, but yeah, I mean, we we've we've experienced some of the uh, the consequences of climate change very very drastically. I'd say. I mean, it was a it was a particularly dry summer. Uh, this year, uh, the, the the vineyards we worked with in, in Tuscany, they didn't see rain for for like four months. We were there in September; they hadn't seen rain in four months. Um, and so the consequence of that was that they had lost about half of their of their yields. Um, it wasn't just uh, drought; it was a late frost, it was delayed flowering, it was uh, extreme temperatures. Uh, Italy broke a record this year with uh, almost forty-nine degrees Celsius in in Sicily. Um, so that affects like yield and and quality of of, of crops that are not irrigated, obviously, uh, but also the the sort of highly resilient ones like like olive uh, olive trees uh, are also sort of impacted by that and so farmers are trying to adapt to that in in, in finding uh, new varieties new techniques um, but it, there's only so much they can do of course because you know your your uh, the season is getting shorter and shorter and so um, they have to collect or harvest at some time um, and so this leads to to all sorts of problems with yields and, and quality. And also, I would like to uh, jump on one thing that you highlighted in uh, in your long thread on uh, Twitter. Um, you basically shared your experience um, with your followers. Um, in particular, it's something that is dear to me because again, I'm 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 from Puglia and I'm from uh, this town that you visited, uh, Foggia. Uh, where there's the where there's there's this um, uh, phenomenon of uh, exploitative conditions of mostly migrant uh, workers on farms to pick tomatoes and other and other um, and other pro- uh, foodstuff products. So, uh, what's your take on this uh, phenomenon? How, what what do you see uh, on the ground when it comes to the exploitation of workers? 
I mean, there's, there's different elements to it. And, and it, well, first we should say that it's not something that is only in Italy. You know, the whole European agriculture relies uh, for part on migrant labor. Um, I mean, there's places in, in, in other countries, uh, think of, of uh, Almeria in Spain, for example, that has the same kind of problems. Um, so it's not just Italy. It's just that we were in Italy, so I talked about Italy. Um, but yeah, I mean, one of the direct consequences of, of, of places like Foggia is that basically they're going to flood the market with with, with cheap um, cheap produce, cheap fruits, cheap vegetables, uh, rock bottom prices in supermarket. When you go to these you know discount supermarkets and you have tomatoes for a euro a kilo, um, I mean that's that's where they come from, right? Um, and so this 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 sort of in a way destroys local economies that people are trying to set up around organic agriculture, for example, uh, because it's impossible to compete with that kind of, you know, sort of extreme corporate concentration, organized crime, modern day slavery. They basically pay uh, um, uh, migrant laborers very little and, and make lots of profit. Um, so it's it's really hard for the communities we, we, we lived with to kind of compete with that and, and make a living out of a form of agriculture that is more respectful of the environment, more respectful of people, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. And you, so you mentioned there about local economies. And uh, so you were, were you mainly kind of dealing with small organic farms? Because one of my questions was actually going to be about, um, you know, the economic viability of some of these farms and whether uh, a lot of the farms that you visited were managing to, you know, to, to make a living to economically survive. Yeah, I mean, we we use the Woofing network. Some of some of the listeners may may know, uh, and it's a very specific type of farm. It's only organic farms. It's 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 uh, rather smaller farms. It's not the sort of big uh, uh, industrial uh, farming uh, activity. So that sort of tweaks the the it changes the image of it, right? Um, I'd say that you had different types. You had people that were doing this full-time uh, main activity um, and 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 working out quite well. Uh, sometimes going to great length in 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 having their their uh, their produce on the market and having to drive two hours to go to the nearest city, for example, to be able to sell their produce because locally they couldn't do it. Uh, but but. But I haven't seen sort of extreme economic hardship in these farms. And then you had other people that were doing this more as a bit of a side gig, right? Uh, they're doing a lot of other things. And this is also part of this recent movement where you had a lot of, not only in Italy, but of everywhere, we had a lot of people from the cities moving back to uh, rural uh, the countryside, basically, and and combining a bit of their old activities with with the farming activities of of, of different kinds. Hmm. So you're seeing kind of a, lots of people moving out into the countryside. And I did you see also? I mean, I know generational renewal is a massive issue, well, all across Europe, but also in um, in Italy. Did you see a lot of young people wanting to get involved or getting involved in these kind of farming projects? Yes, I mean, I've, it's not an age thing. I, mean, I haven't, I've, I've come across farmers that were, you know, uh, close to retirement age, and I've come across farmers that were, you know, just starting. Um, so they're there. Um, I mean, and this, this, this sort of uh, story about uh, youth leaving the countryside isn't isn't sort of 
always uh, the case everywhere. I mean, there's places in Italy where it's really bad, but there's other places where, um, because of you know the location, obviously when you're in Tuscany and you're half an hour away from uh, from Firenze, um, it's it's you know it's not the kind of the same kind of place, and it's not sort of abandoned by um, by young people. Um, so yeah, we, you come across these a lot actually. So thanks, Brandon, for your uh, insights and for having shared your experience uh, with our uh, listeners. Hello and welcome to our Flavor of the Week. This week we have a doubly special edition because we have a flavor that's linked to two things that happens this week, happened this week which are Valentine's Day and the EU-African Union Summit. Uh, very linked, uh, because they both have to do with cocoa. It was very tough to find, to find something. Uh, yeah, we, uh, we managed to, to tie so, them up. Yeah. So, uh, it's quite impressive, I have to say. I mean, if, if I say so for ourselves, <laughs> it's impressive. We're impressive. Timely, I would say, timely. So you can imagine a Venn diagram of like Valentine's Day, Africa, And in the middle, we have uh, cacao. That's beautiful. Uh, or cocoa. Or cocoa, fair. Cacao and cocoa. <laughs> Let's say chocolate. Let's say chocolate. Uh-huh, okay. All right. So why are we talking about chocolate? Right. Take it away, Julia. Uh, yeah. So um, whether you celebrated Valentine's Day or Galentine's Day or both, the chances are that chocolate was involved in your celebrations. Uh, because according to polls, chocolate or pralines are the second most popular Valentine's Day gift after perfume and cosmetics. Personally, I don't really understand why uh, chocolate doesn't top the list, but uh, yeah, new no. research is incomprehensible. Yeah, cosmetics. Guys, I, I also don't understand what is Valentine's Day. Valentine's <laughs> <laughs> Day, where you no, show love that. for your gals. Really? It's important. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Oh We were all sending messages like "Happy Galentines" to all my girl, girlfriends, girlfriends. Okay. Not, not all my girlfriends. Okay. <laughs> now, now, now I understand why I haven't ever heard about this. Okay. But you're not, you're not a gal. No, I'm afraid. Sorry. Gerardo. Yeah, 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 yeah. The more you know. Oh, but... please. Uh, sorry, Julia. Go ahead. <laughs> uh, yeah, but new research has also found that the chocolate industry also benefits from a rising self-care trend around Valentine's Day. So basically uh, treating yourself, which is also a good idea. Um, but also all year round, the EU consumes a lot of chocolate. Uh, EU countries are big fans and consume an above average amount. And it may come as a surprise that the top chocolate fans in the world are not actually Belgians, as you might expect, but Germans uh, with the largest per capita consumption, which is 11 kilograms a year. Well, the average is less than one kilogram a year. So you collected this data, Julia? I did per, from personal experience. Ah, okay. As a German. Okay, okay. <laughs> yeah, as a German. Because, I mean, you know that we actually live in, uh, me and Tasha are living in Belgium, so we can't be targeted for such an allegation. So uh, I, I, I just want to tell our listener that I don't agree with this. Uh, I, can, I can personally <laughs> assure you that I eat 11 kilograms of chocolate per year. Ah, yeah, okay, at least, okay. at least. Okay. Yeah, but uh, it's definitely also cash crop because the European chocolate market was valued at 46 billion euros in 2020. And uh, it's not just recently that people have been cra going crazy about chocolate or cocoa, c cacao, 
because consumption of uh, cacao uh, was first rooted in the in Mesoamerican history, uh, and it was a highly prized luxury item among Mayan and Incan upper classes. Um, cocoa beans were actually once so valuable that they were sometimes used to pay taxes. And by the early 17th century, the trend had also reached Europe, and it became fashionable, for example, at the Palace of Versailles under Louis XIV, the Sun King. And fun fact about that, when Marie Antoinette married him in uh, 1770, she actually brought her own chocolate maker to court. Wow, she had her priorities in the right place. Mm-hmm. Guys, this thing of paying taxes with uh, cocoa beans is really interesting. I think we should relaunch this uh, this idea. Uh, but I have some... Belgium might be open to that. Belgium, yeah. yeah. It could become um, uh, a tax haven. Okay. Um, <laughs> uh, guys, I have two curiosities mm. about chocolate and the EU. So I, I do the the boring one. Um, so you know that there's actually a directive, uh, actually two directives related to cocoa and chocolate products. Uh, they both dated back to 2000, 2000. And, uh, and it's basically um, allows the use of vegetable fats other than cocoa butter for the manufacturing of products, uh, of chocolate products, which you see quite interesting because there was um, a case uh, brought at the European Court of Justice between the Commission and Italy. Uh, because I, I've grown up in Italy, so uh, when I was a kid, every every commercial related to chocolate had the um you know the not the warning but i mean the the claim pure chocolate no puro cioccolato from and actually this pure chocolate thing uh wasn't in compliance with the directive uh, for the for the mere fact that uh, this adjective pure to the sales name uh, so basically, Italy used this uh, adjective pure uh, to chocolate that didn't contain vegetable fats other than cocoa butter. But the, the, the basically the, the commission saying that uh, that uh, this would create uh, you know like a, uh, a double standard, and in the end the court uh, um, backed the commission stance, saying that the. Uh, chocolate products uh, um, with uh, vegetables, fats other than cocoa butter uh, could, of course, uh, shouldn't be distinguished by uh, the by the other. You no, know, with with this uh, with this name, pure chocolate. This is a curiosity, and the second curiosity was about a question that an MEP, a socialist MEP, is still MEP uh, now, uh, who asked the commission. In, tw- in 2013, if uh, to push for a ban <laughs> on confectionery and toys designed for children uh, that uh, look like tobacco-based products. So basically it was referring to the chocolate cigarettes. I remember those. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And indeed they don't exist anymore. I mean, I, I don't see them anymore. That's oh, true. We also and had re- uh, gum cigarettes, if you remember those. Or cancer, okay, okay. And there's actually a cancer recommendation, so it's basically a, a guideline from the commission, um, from the com- from approved by member states. In 2003, uh, 
uh, on the prevention of smoking, which basically uh, call on member states to prohibit the sale of sweets and toys, toys intended for children and manufacturing with the clear intention that the product uh, would resemble uh, in appearance uh, a type of tobacco product. So um, that's why, I mean, and it's up to member states to uh, approve or put in their national legislation this kind of recommendation, because again, it's a recommendation. But it's that's why, for instance, in certain countries, uh, chocolate cigarette disappear. That, that, that's that, that. These were my my curiosities. Fun facts. Yeah, yeah they, super they fun. Facts. Facts. Interesting. Super. Interesting. And let's talk about now. So obviously, this chocolate has to come from somewhere. And although Europe is dominating chocolate manufacturing, of course, it's not producing it. We have to get it from somewhere else. Um, and actually, a large part of that comes up from uh, comes from Africa, so especially West Africa. So the Ivory Coast makes up 40% of the market share of the cacao bean uh, supplies to Europe. That's followed in second place by Ghana and Nigeria. Um, but there's been a lot of concerns about working conditions on cacao plantations um, to do with fair pet. Pe- fair pay for workers um, in these countries and a lot of cases of child labor. I remember there was some famous cases of this, um, I think, to do with Nestle a few years ago. Um, so in which, you know, l- large chocolate retailers have been accused of uh, of these cases in their supply chains. Um, and so a lot of concerns around this and this led to the creation that was the fair trade label, which I'm sure lots of people are really familiar with, which certifies that farmers and workers producing these beans have received an additional premium on top of their wage. Um, But there's still a lot of criticism about this. So uh, there's a lot of campaigners warning there are, it's getting a bit confusing because there are lots of different kind of labels, making it hard for consumers to judge, you know, what's really behind that label and what really the conditions were behind creating these cacao beans that produced their beloved chocolate in Europe. Um, And they were also saying that on the ground, it's getting increasingly difficult for small farmers uh, with less resources to kind of gain the contacts and the resources um, to fulfill the necessary conditions to secure this fair trade label. And in the news from the capitals this week, first up, we have Ireland. So this week, Ireland's Minister for Agriculture, Charlie McConnellog, along with the Irish Food Board, plus a bunch of representatives from Ireland's um, agri-food companies, took off on a week-long trade mission to the United Arab Emirates and also to Saudi Arabia. Um, And the trip actually proved to be quite fruitful. It ended with uh, the expansion of the market access for Irish beef in Saudi Arabia. So up until now... There has been a restriction, meaning that Irish beef exported to the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia had to come from cattle slaughtered under 30 months of age. But this agreement has been reached this week to lift this. And the minister also added that there has been um, some more commitments from the Saudi Food and Drug Authority for more technical engagement on sheep meat access and also the possibility in the future of extending this to poultry as well. So watch this space. And we move to Strasbourg, but to talk about Spain and Portugal, so the uh, Iberian Iberian Peninsula, because um, during the plenary this week, there was a, um, a, a, like a debate between the uh, MEPs and the Equality Commissioner Helena Dalli about the serious drought situation suffered um, in in uh, in Spain and in Portugal, uh, and. Dali, uh, the commissioner Dali, uh, also 
said that it might be possible for affected farmers uh, to get support from the um, Rural Development Fund, which is the second pillar of the Common Agricultural Policy, uh, as well as the European Agricultural Guarantee Fund. And, uh, and uh, as Natasha said, uh, watch uh, this space because Spain and Portugal Agriculture Minister uh, will, uh, will put this in the agenda of the next uh, Agrifish Council on Monday in Brussels. Uh, so it, it's definitely something that will be uh, addressed also by uh, other ministers. And finally, we move to Germany, where we see increasing calls to end marketing of unhealthy products to children. Um, so while Germany's government coalition is actually working on plans to ban ads for unhealthy products that are aimed at children, Uh, this week, stakeholders have come together to call for a very strengthened and strict regulation on this. So, for for example, they called to introduce a ban on poster ads for unhealthy products around schools and also to ban TV ads for these between uh, 6 a.m. and 11 p.m. during the day. Um, and these organizations said that, it would, that this will be necessary for the protection of children and teenagers. Um, which they said in a joint position paper that they released this week um, together with um, health insurance companies, uh, the German Alliance for Non-Communicable Diseases and also the Consumer Protection um, Authority. Um, and these organizations also stress that, especially since the beginning of the pandemic, uh, the number of children with obesity has actually been growing, which makes this problem uh, all the more pressing. Um, but on the other hand, The advance was criticized by the advertising industry uh, and they argued that it was misleading to argue that obesity in children was only uh, caused by marketing and that you shouldn't uh, target marketing and ads for this. And this is all in the context that the uh, German coalition in their coalition agreement have vowed to bring in ads for unhealthy food, so food that is high in salt, fat, sugar, um, that are geared towards children under 14. That's all from us this week. This week, the AgriFood podcast is produced by Euractiv's AgriFood team, Gerardo Fortuna, Natasha Foot, and Julia Dahm, with the technical support of Abby Chiori. This podcast is also available on all major streaming platforms, including Apple, Amazon, Stacker, and Spotify. Be sure to subscribe so that you don't miss the latest news from the EU. I'm Natasha Foot. Thanks so much for listening and see you next week.